Um, let me just tell you a little bit about where we're going tonight, and then we'll get started. As you notice, just the uh, atmosphere is just a little bit different. We didn't make you come in silence. Things are a little bit more interactive, and we will give you all the instructions you need about the small groups that will follow the longer, um, we'll have a slightly longer large group time and a slightly shorter um, small group time, but we'll give you all those instructions as we get closer. Um, so in just a few minutes, uh, Megan Robbins is going to come and lead us in a guided examen. Uh, for those of you in this year's cohort, you probably don't know Megan. Uh, Megan has been on, on maternity leave. She just had baby number three, and so Christy's been filling in for her. Um, but Megan is going to lead um, a prayer exercise uh, tonight and also help us with the leadership um, next week. And then uh, George is going to come and just speak to us from the wisdom of uh, his life. Something that I am aware of right now is that because we give you such a great book to read, we don't have to like reteach you everything. So it gives George and I a little bit of freedom to just kind of touch on uh, certain things, hopefully to uh, make, help you continue to make personal connections, to encourage you in the work of prayer that you'll be doing. Uh, and then after George's comments, I have a little bit of teaching to do to present the work that we'll be doing in the upcoming week. Um, and then finally, we have a fun group exercise that we'll be doing. I think most of us are going to fit in here. If we don't have enough room, there are places to spread out in the hospitality area. So, Megan, why don't you come and set us up for um, an examen. I'm just going to free you right now. You don't have to look at me doing this exercise, so if you're one of the folks with your seats to not facing, that's totally fine. This is, you can just listen. So we're going to um, walk through a gratitude examen. And I would encourage you, before we even start, just settle yourself in your seat. Make sure you're comfortable. I know you're crowded, but if you can just feel like you have the space you need, maybe clear a little bit of visual space in front of you if it feels too chaotic. Just take a few deep breaths and center yourself into the space that you're in tonight. If there's anything weighing on you from your day that you're still carrying into the room, I encourage you to imagine it just left out of the door outside this room. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this time. Guide our thoughts, our hearts, and our bodies to be open to you. We'll start by becoming present to God and aware of God's loving gaze on you. Take a few deep breaths and welcome God's love into your body and relax into this way of prayer. Notice God's presence dwelling in you and all around you. As you think of things, express your thanks to the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to illumine your memories of the past 24 hours.
look over the, the day, starting by praying, Holy Spirit, I welcome you into my recollections of this day. I want to notice what needs noticing so that I can recognize God's love and generosity towards me and the world around me. Help me notice and give you thanks for all the people and circumstances and events of my life that reveal your love and care for me. As the hours replay in your mind, just if you're comfortable opening your hands to receive what the Lord has for you and become aware of the varied dimensions of your experience today. Your five senses. What were things you encountered through your senses today? What did you see, hear, smell, taste, feel with your hands and on your skin? Think of the people in your life today. Recall the faces of those you interacted with. Notice any details of conversations or interactions that present your, themselves to your review. What memories from your past, if any, came to mind today? Now gather these, these things together and savor them. Linger over anything for which you are most grateful for today. Now express your gratitude. Speak directly to God and give voice to what you have noticed during this time of prayer.
Now take time to notice your ingratitude, praying, Lord, I want to notice any ingratitude I have in relation to you and other people. I give you permission to show me the ways I've been ungrateful. And take a moment to actively give the Lord that permission. Now thinking over your, with your five senses again, is there any material created thing in your life that you struggled to appreciate today? Think about your relationships. Is there someone in your life right now that you have failed to appreciate as your own beloved creation, as God's own beloved creation? Is the Holy Spirit tugging at you right now, trying to draw your attention to something for which you are ungrateful or unaware? Speaking directly to God, give voice to what you have noticed during this time of prayer. Forgive me, Lord, for all the ways, large and small, that I have been ungrateful. And thank you, Lord, for the gift of my life. now receive the forgiveness of God. And we'll just rest for a minute in that forgiveness and love that your Father is delighted to give to you today.
Lastly, call to mind what awaits you tomorrow. Ask the Lord for growing gratitude in the various areas of your life, especially the ones you find most challenging. Let's conclude by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. All right, folks. I was sitting there. It's good to do that before you have to public speak. I like that. I should do that all the time. Um, discernment is a huge topic. And uh, I have to tell you, it's, there's a lot, a lot written out there about it. And we had three weeks, so I tried to read most of it. <laughs> now, that was a bad mistake. <laughs> that was a bad mistake. Um, you know, I like a simple definition of it. It's just where faith meets action, right? Or where prayer meets action. I mean, there comes a point in your Christian life, right, where... You've been intaking all this information and, you know, sermons and teachings and scripture, and you want to do something, right? You feel the need to do something. I hope you feel the need to do something. And discernment is basically answering the question, what? And the thing about discernment that I think makes it so difficult, I don't have a big difficulty making decisions, all right, I mean, I can figure out what car to buy. I can figure out. I tend to do that kind of stuff just on my own steam. All right, I tend to just make a pro and con list, look at the comparisons. I can even use Google, you know, and just get on there and, and figure out what to do. But there's a subjective side to discernment, right? It's not like you can go to Harvard Business School and learn how to do all the analysis. But for Christians, there's, there's even more to it, right? And, I mean, we can really complicate this if you want. Well, you, you don't have any choice, in all honesty, right? Because the discernment decisions, they don't just affect you, right? You, almost all of us are in relationships, right? We have families. We have children. We have spouses. We have parents. We have grandparents. All these people, it's like one of those mobiles, right, with all the things. When you change one thing on it, everything moves. And trying to take that all in when we practice discernment 
can be really overwhelming. I really liked the book. When Val picked it and all of us, the leaders read it, we thought, this is a great book. And I think the reason it's such a good book is because it seems to take the subjective side of discernment and really take a good look at it. Even almost gives you a little bit of a recipe. We don't like recipes that much here. But it gives you some, some information uh, on how to process the subjective side. So I like that. Now, you know, me being the old guy here uh, on the team, uh, for me, the discernment, I have the advantage of being able to look in the rearview mirror, right? I've already made the major life decisions, right? They say there are three major life decisions, and if you get them right, life will be pretty much good. You can, pretty, you can guess them, right? Who are you going to share your life with? Your spouse? Jesus. What? Jesus. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's the second one now. That should have been the first one. <laughs> what God are you going to follow? Who are you going to spend your life with? And what work are you going to dedicate yourself to? Those are the three big life decisions that, you know, people say. And we get, I mean, those are ones that I think take some time, right? We should take some time in thinking about them. We don't always do that. But they say if you get those big three right, you know, your life will probably be good. Now, I put that in, in quotes, right? Those are air quotes. I make them bigger for the room. It's not the same as saying that your life will be easy without hardship and always, you know, full of effervescent happiness, right? That's, that's not what we're saying. How you even judge success in a discernment process is, is not so easy to know. Uh, I put up the decision, what is discernment? You know, the link between prayer and, and action. And what's the goal? In the book, I have a hard time with his name, the book God's Voice Within, in that book, uh, he refers to the magus. The magus. It's even in the glossary in the back of the book if you want to look it up. But, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. The goal of everything is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That's the answer to the first question on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But that's the same thing as is in this, oh, it's all up there. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing that's in the book, right? The, the goals are the same. We want to glorify God, right? As Christians, your heads should all nod this way, yeah, okay? We want to glorify God. The question is just how. How in the world do we do that? And, you know, you can pick door number one, door number two. We're also living in the land of opportunity, right? It makes it even more, I don't want to say difficult, but there are so many options. You can, you can get caught in the paralysis of analysis when there are so many things to see. So there are, if, you, if you type in discernment in your word search on some Bible program, you know, don't just type in discern with an asterisk and see what verses come up. There are only about nine in the New Testament. But I think it's interesting that ones that pop, you'll, you'll know some of them, but I get a, got a kick out of the, the first one that I looked at that came up was out of Luke, and it was about the Annunciation to Mary. You know? Greetings, favored one. And then the, the editorial commentary is that she was pausing to discern what type of greeting this might be. You know? 
Even Mary had a little trouble with discernment, and, and I, can, I can understand. I, I wrote this one verse down that I like, Hebrews 5.14. You know, and this is the passage when he's talking about maturity. You know, he's, he's kind of chewing out the Hebrews for uh, its straining. Where did you do that? Okay. <laughs> he's kind of chewing out the Hebrews for for not being mature they should by now you should be mature but really you're still just a child right need to be need to be fed milk instead of meat and he writes the meat or the solid food is for the mature those who have the To distinguish between good and evil. It's a windy night, folks. We may be in and out a little bit, so just, just go with it. And that's, that's kind of our, our uh, I think it's a good verse to think about. There's a certain maturity that comes from experience and, and, uh, and making decisions and living with the results. I, you know, and I've told you my military stories so many times, you know, go like this if you're tired, but... We, we always thought that when people came to boot camp at 18 that their ethical systems were pretty much formed at 18. What, yeah, and, and now we know, I mean, research has shown that it takes much more time for that to happen and that it can, we could really have an impact. And life experience is really what builds up our ability to discern. When you make decisions and you get to follow through and see the outcome and live the outcome and not be shielded from the outcome and have to deal with the outcome, it really does mature you. And it gives you, so I think in this verse, it's, it's saying that discernment is learned. And that's part of the reason that we're here. Um, a book I really like, and I, you probably won't run out and get it, but it's a brand new book by Wayne Grudem. Uh, called Christian Ethics, has a big fat chapter on discerning the will of God. And it was our anniversary, and my wife gave me this lovely book. So I, I read the chapter. And one of the illustrations he uses in there, he says, you know, it's discerning the will of God is like a, a golf swing. He said, it's like learning a golf swing. There are so many different parts to it, and you need to do this. Or I, I'd say like playing a musical instrument, or you, know, you can think of any complex task like that. You kind of learn it step by step, riding a bicycle. You learn step by step. But sometimes you don't have long to make decisions, right? You, you really don't. And you have, you know, you've got to fit the decision to the time you have allotted. Otherwise, it's not worth making. But once a pl player has learned to do the golf swing, you watch it on TV. They walk up, they put the tee down, they waggle a couple times, and bang, they, they go through all that. That's part of what we're trying to do here in this, this little mini course, is give you some of the steps that you can practice in discernment so as you do it, you can run through them more quickly and make, make good decisions, make decisions that are pleasing to both God and you. Constant practice, constant practice. So they can, decisions can be quick or drawn out. They can involve major events or small daily activities. Where do you, you know, 
I mean, when I get up and I look into my sock drawer, I don't pull out a copy of God's Voice Within to decide, <laughs> to decide which pair's going on today, right? You have to, you have to figure out, what, you know, where is this applied? It's definitely got to be applied to the big three that I just mentioned. But I think for most of us, um, I mean, I'm always applying, trying to apply this discernment process to how can I serve God? in what situation I am now, right? Now I'm a retired guy. What, what, what should I do to serve God now that I have more time, less energy? You know, how do I work that? How do I discern that? You know, when, when I was younger, when I was in seminary, a, a book came out that, that caught on, and some of you may know it, called Decision Making in the Will of God. It was first published in like 1980. And a, a, a real interesting book. It was republished in 2004, and it's been reviewed many times because it's a little controversial, you know, because his conclusion is God basically gives you, he gives you free will to do whatever you want. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. But he says within God's moral will, you're free to do what you want. You know, he disputes that there is an individual will for, for each individual I, don't th I think if Ignatius would give him a run for his money on that one. I do think there is an individual will for people. But I don't worry so much about it. And one of the chapters in that book is called um, Hitting the Dot. Right? I'd call it Hitting the Bullseye. That there's only one will of God out there for you. And if you miss, you know, instead of hitting the 10, you hit the 9, you're forever outside of God's perfect will for you. I don't, I don't like that. I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, I think God's plan is far bigger than anything that we can comprehend that's so simple as a dartboard. If any of you play these games, I'll pray for you if you do, but if any of you play these games where, you know, you're going through and, you know, you go through all this, these mazes and stuff, I see it... Um, I used to play Halo with my guys in the military. I'll confess to that right here. <laughs> but there are so many options. Do we really think God's plan is less complicated than a Halo game? I, I don't think so. I don't think you I, or me, by our decision-making, will frustrate the plan of God. And I think we can step forward in, in that confidence and the confidence that God indeed loves each of us. And he's promised to make all things, even our really goofy decisions, work out for good. So he will make them um, valuable. One of the things that I, that I like to say is, you know, I've, I've been ordained for 30-some years, and I've worked secular jobs, and I've worked in full-time Christian ministry. For the disciple of Christ, all jobs are ministry. I, I don't think I can say that strongly enough. I mean, the Christian businessman who runs his business as a Christian is a tremendous witness, a tremendous witness. I, I, I watched, uh, I know nobody else in here probably did, but I watched the football game last night. And I watched all the way through because I wanted to see what the winning coach was going to say. right? And the coach of Clemson who whooped the snot out of Alabama. But anyway, the coach of Clemson got up there, and the, I mean, 
he referred to God and Jesus multiple times in his, in his response. And it was just so natural. It was not canned. It wasn't like, you know, John 3.16 sign. It was, you could tell this was part of this man's ethos and the team. I, 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 I thought it was wonderful. Secular job making three million a year, but a secular, <laughs> secular job. But I, 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 th I thought that was wonderful, and, and it, it's a great point. And I, I, I love the Puritans and the Reformation, and the Puritans really used to harp on this. You know, I, I, can, I can read you, you know, a good Puritan quote. Thy diligence, you got to get those thys in there, thy diligence must proceed from conscience, not covetousness from subjection to God's word, not from affection for wealth. I mean, what a better testimony do we have than people working in the secular world who are Christians and are unashamed Christians and who, who glorify God in treating people like Christ. I think it's a tremendous witness, and when we want to witness, uh, it's... <laughs> Not always switching to full-time is the way to go if we want to have real impact. And I, I can remember being a regular officer in the Navy, and I can remember being a chaplain in the Navy, and I'm not sure which had the better, more impact for Christ. Right? When I would talk to people as a chaplain about Jesus, I always remember walking away once and hearing the guy say, ah, he's the chaplain, he's supposed to talk like that. You know? And when I was a regular officer, their, their eyes would get big, you know? And I kind of liked that, right? I felt, I felt a little impact. So this is a quote that I, I've seen, and I've hated it and loved it, by a great man of God from long ago, Augustine. Uh, Love God and do what you please, or do what you will. That was kind of a summary. But the important thing with that line, I, I ran into it first in a, my first time I was going through spiritual director training, and I really disliked the way it was being used. It seemed to be just be, you know, here's here's a you know a no limit credit card, knock yourself out. But you can never split that sentence. It's love God and do what you will. They go together. You can't split those two apart. You know, what did Christ say it meant to love God? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That's how we love God. We love God through moral obedience, obedience to the commands he's given. And he responds by revealing more and more of himself. And then we love him more and more. Love God and do what you desire. When you love God like that, believe it or not, you desire to live a self-sacrificing life. To deny, I always wondered how that went together with deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. When you love God, that desire to walk the same path that Christ walked grows within you. 
And that becomes part of the discernment process. So yeah, we've, I, I love that it's a nice short quote and it's easy to remember, but the key is just those two must stay connected together. And then finally, I've used this diagram before, the growing cross, and I've retitled it the growing Christ because it's, it's more than just his cross. Right, I'm all, I'm all, I, when we get near the end, I harp on instead of stations of the cross, we should do stations of the resurrection, right? Because we serve a risen Christ, right? The focus shouldn't just be on the cross. But that diagram that Christ should be getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we learn about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourself, the, only a bigger and bigger Christ can span that gap. And he grows in us as we mature. That's the maturity that the earlier verse in Hebrews, I think, is talking about. I came across a thing, and I think in everything in res, somebody has to quote something by C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to do that now. <laughs> we can check that off. I ran across a, uh, a thing from uh, Crania, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Thank you. In this Prince Caspian, and I'm going to read it so I get it properly right. In Prince Caspian, the children were lost in the woods, trying to come to the aid of Prince Caspian and his, and his bedraggled army. In the middle of the night, Lucy woke up and unexpectedly met the person she most wanted to see, Aslan the lion. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I, I really think that's at the base of discernment. Our union with Christ, and as he grows to occupy more of us, especially those spots that we keep the doors closed on, those dark spots, that's where Satan really starts pulling the string on us. When he starts to occupy those, our discernment process gets, I'd say, easier, more straightforward. So I encourage you to dive in to the book. Don't hold back and uh, fully engage. And alumni, thank you for being here. It's nice to see these faces. All right, I want to give you um, a little instruction on the prayer experiences that we'll be having um, coming up here. But uh, more, more than that, I want to give you a little teaching on spiritual battle. I don't know if any of you were surprised to find out that there's a connection between um, our ability to discern spirits when we're talking about sort of spiritual warfare and how the evil one affects us and decision-making. Um, because any time, and I think one of the reasons these things are so profoundly connected, uh, not only because we use similar muscles to make decisions when we're trying to follow God's will, as to when we're trying to figure out, like, is the devil messing with me? And we're trying to discern those kinds of spirits. Um, one of the reasons for that is because our decisions actually are so profound. Um, the capacity that God has given us as human beings to make choices, it's part of, like, what it's the core to be a human being. Um, as 
animals that intellectual animals as human beings we have so many more choices than any other kind of creature on the planet and the angels they actually only had one choice you know all they do is execute god's will they don't have to make any decisions so there's something about decision making that is so inherent in what it means to be human and so the great cosmic battle that is all around us will of course be aimed at the some of that core identity of who we are as human beings. Um, Ignatius calls Ignatius calls the devil uh, the enemy of human nature. And it is at this point of decision making that the enemy of human nature sort of turns up the heat. And uh, because of that, if we can start to recognize his schemes in just sort of our daily, everyday lives, then when it's time to make a decision, we can discern the spirits. You know, am I being moved from this locus of the world, the flesh, and the devil, or is the Holy Spirit of God moving me? So back to C.S. Lewis. Um, a little quote here from C.S. Lewis. Uh, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That's pretty intense. <laughs> you'll, you'll realize that he had an Ignatian spiritual director, right? It, it, things start to make more sense that way. So I want to read you a fun uh, little excerpt from Paralandra. Any fans of Paralandra in the Space Trilogy? Okay. So this is at the very beginning of the book, and the narrator, who is you know the pretend author of the story, is going to meet his friend Ransom. And Ransom has done some interplanetary travels in the first book. He's going to, he's been to Mars, he's going to go to Venus. And one of the things that's happened when he kind of gets out from under the uh, sort of the sphere that's around the Earth is that he comes out from underneath the, uh, the power of the evil one, of the, of the Archon Angel who's sort of in charge of our, of our planet. And um, part of what Lewis is trying to teach us is try to give us some kind of understanding of how the human being experiences both the, the Holy Spirit and the angelic spirits uh, influencing them and what it feels like when the devil and the demonic spirits are influencing a person. So this is right at the beginning of the story, and the narrator has gotten off the train, and he is headed to Ransom's house, his friend's house, um, where their next adventure is going to begin. And um, he, in, he encounters uh, quite an assault on his thoughts. So I'm going to read you just a little bit of the narrator's experience of what happened. So this is right after he gets off the train. I kept on telling myself that it would be perfectly delightful to spend a night with my friend Ransom. And I also kept on feeling that I was not enjoying the prospect as much as I ought to. As I plodded along the empty, unfenced road, which runs across the middle of Worcester Common, I tried to dispel my growing sense of malaise by analyzing it. What, after all, was I afraid of? The moment I had put this question, I regretted it. 
I was shocked to find that I had mentally used the word afraid. Up until then, I had tried to pretend that I was feeling only distaste or embarrassment or even boredom. But the mere word afraid had let the cat out of the bag. I realize now that my emotion was neither more nor less nor other than fear. He capitalizes the word fear. And I realized that I was afraid of two things, afraid that sooner or later I myself might meet one of these angelic beings and afraid that I might get drawn in. I suppose everyone knows this fear of getting drawn in, that moment at which a man realizes that what had seemed to him mere speculations are on the point of landing him in the Communist Party or the Christian Church. Or the sense that a door has just slammed and left him on the inside. This is a long, dreary road, I thought to myself. Thank goodness. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't everything, I haven't so much to carry. And then with the start of realization, I remembered that I ought to be carrying my pack, containing my things for the night. I swore to myself, I must have left the thing on the train. Will you believe me when I say that my immediate impulse was to turn back to the station and do something about it? Of course, there was nothing to be done, which could not equally be well done by a phone call from the college. That train with my pack in it must by this time be miles away. I realize now as clearly as you do, but at the moment it seemed perfectly obvious that I must retrace my steps and that I had indeed begun to go to to do so before reason or conscience awoke in me and set me once again plodding forward. In doing this, I discovered more clearly than before how little I wanted to do it. It was such hard work that I felt as if I were walking against a headwind. But in fact, it it was one of those still dead evenings when no twig stirs, and beginning to be a little foggy. His sense of doom increases. The feeling, the strength of the feeling astonished me. I stood still for a few moments telling myself not to be a fool. And when I finally resumed my walk, I was wondering whether this might not be the beginning of a nervous breakdown. No sooner had this idea occurred to me that it also became another new reason for not visiting Ransom. Obviously, I wasn't fit for any such jumpy business as this telegram most certainly referred to. I wasn't even fit to spend an ordinary weekend away from home. My only sensible course was to turn back at once and get safe to home before I lost my memory or became hysterical and I put myself in the hands of a doctor. It was sheer madness to go on. The reader, not knowing Ransom, will understand how contrary to all reason this idea was. The rational part of my mind, even at that moment, knew perfectly well that even if the whole universe were crazy and hostile, my friend Ransom was sane and wholesome and honest. And this part of my mind, in the end, sent me forward. But with a reluctance and a difficulty I can hardly put into words. 
I have naturally no wish to enlarge on this phase of my story. The state of mind I was in was one which I look back on with humiliation. It, I would have passed over it if, it did not, if I did not think that some account of it was necessary for a full understanding of what follows, and perhaps of some other things as well. At all events, I can't really describe how I finally reached the door of the cottage, somehow or other, despite the loathing and dismay that pulled me back and a short, invisible wall of resistance that met me in the face, fighting for each step, almost shrieking as a harmless spray of hedge touched my face. I managed to get through the gate and up the little path. And there I was, drumming on the door and ringing the handle and shouting to him to let me in as if my life depended on it. A few things, uh, other things transpire. And finally, the narrator meets his friend, Ransom. By Jove, I'm glad to see you, said Ransom, advancing and shaking hands with me. I had hoped to be able to meet you at the station, but everything has had to be arranged in such a hurry, and I found out at the last moment that I had to go up to the college. I never intended to leave you or make you take that journey alone. Then seeing, I suppose, that I was still staring at him rather stupidly, he added, I say... You are all right, aren't you? You got through the barrage without any damage? The barrage? I don't understand. I was thinking that you would have met some difficulties getting here. Oh, that, I said. You mean it wasn't just my nerves? There was really something in the way? Yes. They didn't want you to get here. I was afraid something of that sort might happen, but there was no time to do anything about it. I was pretty sure you'd get through somehow. They'll put all sorts of things into your head if you let them, said Ransom lightly. The best plan is to take no notice of them and keep straight on. Don't try to answer them. They are drawing you into an interminable argument. So, and then if you've read this book, parts of this book are interminable arguments. <laughs> they go on and on and on. So anyways, the first time you read it, you'll be like, this is the interminable arguments are just going to drive me nuts. So anyways, it's, it's, a, it's a book to be savored over a few decades, I think. <laughs> All right. So uh, a little quote here from scripture. Um, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The exact opposite of what the narrator experienced on his um, journey to do what uh, he was given to do. So what I'd like to do now is just to review, um, say a little bit about the prayer exercises for this week, and then I want to share with you a little bit from my life uh, that I hope would be of encouragement to you. Um, if you'll take a look at your green sheet, uh, 
Uh, let me just read you this first paragraph. Um, the subtitle for this week is Creating a Consolation Desolation Baseline. A baseline is a known state by which something is measured or compared. In discernment, such a baseline is determined through prayerful reflection on personal experiences of consolation and desolation. The goal is to concisely describe what these dynamics feel like and how, how they have played out in the past with the goal of establishing a baseline that is particular to one's lived experiences. Creating a consolation desolation baseline leads to an increased awareness and discernment in the present and serves as an invaluable preparation for decisions to be made in the future. Um, I have given you just a few short passages of scripture to pray with uh, this week in the way that we normally do, praying with scripture. Um, I would just encourage you to take your time with them. But the main work that we're doing um, are, is prayer exercise A, which is a review of the our experiences of consolation in life. Um, all of you who have been through the first part of the spiritual exercises. So this would be probably the first month of our TI experience, which means it might be really helpful for you to actually review your journal from that time. But it also may be as you're reading uh, the book that you remember other moments of consolation. And my encouragement to you is to just keep in mind that as you're in your prayer chair with your candle or your timer going, that when you have those recollections, that you want to trust that the Holy Spirit is resting on your memories and you want to keep track of those things because it's that information that's particular to you and to your life which is going to help you have a baseline for what consolation uh, feels like in your life. Um, the work that's newer is the prayer exercise B which is observing a past desolation. Um, I have talked to a couple of people. I'm thinking of one guy in particular he uh, had been reading this book, and he said, oh, I realize that I've been in a long desolation for like over a year. You know, it really helped me to be able to name what's been going on for me. Um, and I hope that you have those experiences. And you want, when you have that, it isn't about mastering the information as much as it about, is it about being aware of what is stirring in your, in your thought and mind so that you can say, this is what consolation feels like. This is what desolation feels like. All right, so I gave you um, a fun little chart. You'll see we, worksheet one, eight helpful responses to desolation. And I took these directly from those chapter headings. Um, you, can, you don't have to use this little chart. I mean, if you were writing things in the margin of your book um, or you're journaling in some other way, that's fine. But it might help you to just kind of go back and gather these and just kind of reprocess the information by using the worksheet. So I thought you might uh, uh, enjoy um, a little tale of desolation from Val McIntyre's life. Um, I, I've had a number of them. I decided to use an earlier one because none of you will know any of the parties involved. Um, as I name the discernment, you won't be like, oh, I wonder if that was so-and-so. You won't have to worry about that because it's ancient history. So. Um, this is how the desolation happened. I was a freshman at Wheaton College, and I wanted to do the hunger program. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but it's a really wonderful program that they have where you spend like a semester and a half, essentially, using whatever your major is in a, uh, usually in a very challenging sort of first world 
setting. And I was really uh, excited about that. And so I think, I think it was my second semester, I took sort of this intro class. Well, at the time, um, they had this very enthusiastic professor who I think the long and the short of it is that he was, he was into a pretty extreme version of, of uh, liberation theology. I actually appreciate a lot of things about liberation theology, but this guy was like brainwashing us. <laughs> At least he was brainwashing me. So um, I was like, you know, I had these plans. I was like, I think I want to be a high school teacher. You know, I want to teach history. Maybe I want to go into ministry. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, the world, people are starving out there. The only thing that I could do to make a difference in the world is to withdraw from Wheaton College, to apply to University of Colorado, to study agriculture, to grow food for hungry people because people are starving in the world. So I was really serious about this. So I went to see my advisor, and she was probably like, I've heard this before, you know. <laughs> and uh, she, she fortunately talked me into... Um, uh, deferring my enrollment <laughs> in case I changed my mind and want to come back. So, yeah, she was very nice. She could have been like, that's a dumb idea, but she, but she didn't. But it's, it's very interesting how the desolation felt. Um, there was a lot of condemnation. Um, I also, like, thought McDonald's was evil, eating meat was evil. I mean, I, there was just a whole overlay of like all the evil, my, all my evil participations in the capitalistic economy, you know. Um, uh, it, it moved me on a course, right? To, and, and it was a good thing. I mean, this is where it really fits with um, uh, response number five, the false angel of light, because it seemed like a really good idea. You know, actually, there are a lot of really critically important ideas embedded in the more orthodox forms of, of, of liberation theology. But it, it, it appeared to be like a better way, the more superior way. And I just looked down on all those mundane, materialistic, I mean, my haughtiness, my pride, my judgment of all the other people who weren't as enlightened as I was, was, was pretty critical. Um, uh, there were a few things that weren't working. So first of all, response number two, avoid making changes. I I, no one told me about that. No one told me, you know, like, I don't know if this is the best time for you to make a decision. Um, I think my advisor, right, she kind of had the right idea. Why don't you defer your enrollment? You know, like, you might want to not stick with this decision. Uh, the third response, rely on your support network. Right, I was really vulnerable, right? Because I'm away from my home church, I'm away from my lifetime friends, I'm away from my family. Actually, as a freshman in college, you have like, you have some like created support network, right, from the college, but like, it's not, it's, it's not the support network that you've had your whole life. So you're a little more vulnerable. So I really had no uh, support net network. What's interesting is when I got back home that summer, and I had my nice acceptance letter to the University of Colorado. But now I was like in my room praying where I had always prayed. I was going to the church I went to in high school. I was meeting my old friends. And it took me about two weeks to think like, you know, I don't even like, I don't even like math and science. And like, I have a lot of allergies. And like, 
you know, and I'm ready to like send in my deposit, you know, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to learn how to grow food in the third world. I don't think it's really what I'm supposed to do, you know. Um, <laughs> so, because I got my support network back, right? And now we can actually have some conversations, and they're going to say to me things like, you know, I know you, Val. And I know your gifts in the Holy Spirit, and I know how God is using you, and um, I know what you're good at, and I know what you're not good at, and does this really fit with how God has created you? This might be perfect for someone else, but I don't think this is actually how is in accord with how God has made you. And that's where discernment comes in, right? And that's the work we've already been doing here. Um, this is, gives us a lot of freedom because we are in a, I don't know what your experience has been, but um, I've often been in contexts where people are like explaining what God told them to do, and they almost think it's more validating if it's completely crazy. You know, like the weirder the better. Um, you know, trying to think, you know, George is not supposed to be a nuclear <laughs> A nuclear engineer, what, 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 what should we have George do? I don't know. Ballet. We're going to call George to ballet, right? So it's great to be a ballerina, but it doesn't really fit with who George is. Um, but this simple thing that the way that we have been made, when we are in accord with how God has made us, we experience consolation. And this helps us to make good um, decisions. Um, I'm going to leave that example for a minute and just comment uh, briefly on a response six. If you want to put that up there, you can keep going. Six, uh, be firm and work diligently. Um, it helped when I did this to act against the desolation. So, you know, back then, I think the best thing I did to act against that desolation was actually to return to prayer, you know, because most of this wasn't, I don't think, prayerfully discerned. It was just idealism. You know, we're so vulnerable to idealism in our 20s and as, as teenagers. Um, since then, that's my go-to. If I get confused... We come back to prayer, um, to talk to the people I trust. Um, my husband is uh, often <laughs> the first one to kind of look at me cross-eyed. What? You know, <laughs> not because he's trying to control me, but just because he's like, I know you. That seems kind of off. You know, um, I had an. It's interesting how this, like this, this, this desire and the sense of need to care for the poor, for the materially poor. There was something good in that that actually continues to come around, and I have to keep trying to work it out in different seasons of my life. Um, there was a, a, a time when uh, Mark and I were away from Church of the Resurrection at the time. We were at a, involved in a little vineyard church, and um, I just entered into the world of having dogs. And I had this just, like, brilliant idea about how, like, having a big dog with me would give me more freedom to, like, move in and out of, like, 
homeless people and drug addicts and everything, you know? So I actually like wrote a ministry proposal, you know, where I'm like, here's my plan, you know? It's like all these homeless people in DuPage County, my dog, it's gonna be awesome, you know? <laughs> and and my, my pastor was like, this is a really neat idea, but I just don't know, see quite how it fits with you and the ministry, you know, sort of where we're called as a church. And I'm like, huh, I think you're right. <laughs> But you got to appreciate the enthusiasm, right? Um, uh, when I was doing the spiritual exercises, I, you know, because there's a lot of emphasis, especially as we move into the second week, Ignatius is really concerned um, that we understand the downward mobility of the gospel that's just inherent in the gospel. And he wants you to be open to doing something really radical uh, with your money and in care for the poor. Um, Actually, uh, like working in a soup kitchen or something is sometimes prescribed as something to do during the second week to help you really identify um, with the material, materially poor um, who are all around us and around the world. Um, and I found myself again when I was doing the exercises like, what am I doing in Wheaton in this suburban church with all these resources, this over-resourced church? You know, like, maybe I should, like, move to Chicago or, like, move to a church plant or, like, do something. Um, and, I mean, I had to ponder that really seriously, realizing, like, this has a lot of history with me, right? This goes back to, like, freshman year in college. Um, and then there's that, that work of prayer. And I realize, I tell you, there's a lot of people who come into my office who are the poor in spirit. If they weren't here at Res, you know, there are not a lot of churches that would care for them and walk with them. They're the hidden, the invisible, uh, those who have mental illness and all kinds of uh, challenges, um, abuse, difficult things in their past that they're trying to overcome. So I've had to re-engage that particular issue, realizing that it, it is an openness to the brokenhearted uh, in me, but it's also one that I can just imagine me going to, to Stuart and like saying, oh, I think everything I'm doing right now for the church is off. You know, I need to make this radical change. Um, he would listen very patiently and be like, we need to pray about this, you know? We really, we really need to discern this. But, but this is just an area where I will um, be drawn because it's, it's part of my history, right? Uh, it's part of where I came from, uh, the, the poverty of my parents, my grandparents, my cousins. Um, and God knows that. It's been very interesting to me when I just offered it up to him, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know why I keep getting these feelings of being called back to that. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting how, uh, like, randomly, I will run into people in, like, downtown Wheaton or something where I'm given this moment to, like, be incredibly generous to someone who is mentally ill um, and I always encounter Jesus in these moments. Like, Jesus is still coming to me in the face of the poor, of the poorest of the poor, but not because I arranged it and went out and did my heroic ministry, but because God brought that person uh, to me. He just wants me to be open. He just wants me to be open. Uh, response number seven, uh, be gentle and patient. Um, when we're in desolation, 
uh, I don't know what your experience will be, but I'm a whole lot more vulnerable to desolation when I'm exhausted and tired. And so sometimes I just need to take a break, um, like an extended break, you know, like go on some crazy silent, eight-day silent retreat or something like that. Um, and then eight, Ignatius, uh, the author of the book, suggests that we have faith that God will make good use of this desolation. Um, certainly, my college freshman story makes a, that's a great story, so that's one good thing that came out of it. Um, but it really helps me be more, more sensitive to a kind of the like heaviness that I see in a person's face when I know they're under some kind of compulsion to do something that's actually not of the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from a place of consolation, but they're crushed down and pressed down by it. All right, and then finally, just a word here on the consolation desolation baseline um, summary page that I've given you. It's on the next page. Um, I hope that you'll spend some time with this, even if you just have one or two bullet points. You don't have to like spend pages about this. Um, but if you get clear on this, like what does consolation feel like for me? And like if the example I just gave, that would be a touchstone experience of desolation in my life. You know, like the next time I'm in desolation, I should probably reflect again on that freshman year. Um, I also have touchstone experiences of consolation. And then what are the emotions that go along uh, with it? Um, I experience a lot of, I don't know what you experience, but I experience a lot of uh, anxiety. Um, I get really judgmental, super judgmental when I'm in desolation. Um, it's embarrassingly awful how judgmental I can become. And I mean, most of you, I think, meet me as like a pretty warm, compassionate person, okay? But when I am in desolation, I am not very nice. Uh, uh, there's a lot of um, judgment there. Thoughts, you know, usually my thoughts are all about how I'm underappreciated, <laughs> which I think is like probably 90% of people, or at least women, we're always worried that we're under, underappreciated. Um, that, or that I'm being taken advantage of, or blah, 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 blah. It's, it's like so predictable, actually, but it's good to get that down. And then finally, what happens with my body? Um, and with my health in a season of desolation. That's one that the author doesn't talk on quite as much. There are other authors who do. Um, I might copy something and include it in your reading packet. I think it would be a nice uh, supplement. But my, my experience has been, um, I have a lot of back problems when I'm in desolation. Um, and I get a lot of tension. Uh, you know, for you it might be something else, but it's just, it doesn't mean every time I have a back problem, I'm in desolation and the devil's trying to mess with me, but it does mean that I should pay attention. Um, so I encourage you just to spend time on that. All right, so we have a fun exercise that Christy is going to explain to us and give us a few more logistical uh, things for the rest of this evening. That was kind of a hard act to follow. Uh, so as uh, some of you have already noticed, there are... Uh, art supplies on the table. Some of you have been waiting for an opportunity to use them, and other of you are probably thinking, I am terrified about what they're about to make us do. So wherever you find yourself on that uh, spectrum, know that there's no judgment. This is not a perfectionistic, you've got to do it one way or the other. This is really... Um, an opportunity to help you maybe get out of just the linear or the, the abstract and actually take a look at your life. And we're going to do what is called a, a gratitude graffiti. That's what we're calling it. 
And it, it, com it is composed of two parts. And, and really, uh, we've been talking about this consolation desolation piece. And, and this is actually to help you kind of exercise that muscle of consolation that it actually gets you in touch with those places where you feel deeply connected to God's goodness in your life. And so this is what we're going to do for about 15 minutes. I think we have about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes. Um, and, I, and I want you to do two things. There's two parts. The first part is you've heard both George and, and Val talk about many times we can think about discernment in these like really far off things from the realities of our lives. But most of us, all of us actually, live with pretty practical spheres of influence, boundaries. Some things may be like your actual job, the one that you currently have, your family, your kids, your body, what your body needs, uh, your gifts, their use in the church, and even the, where you live. What does it mean for us to live or work in Wheaton, Illinois, or wherever home is for you? So the first part of it is I want you to take, you can all start doing this now, go ahead and take one of the pieces of paper in the middle, and whatever uh, art uh, supplies you would like to use, and I'd like for you to spend the first few minutes drawing uh, what those spheres are for you. Now, you may love boxes, you may love circles, you may love a you just want to draw all over it. I'm going to give you poetic license, which may terrify some of you. For those of you who don't like poetic license, just put boxes of what spheres of your life uh, or circles uh, really are a part of your reality. And then the second part is I want you to look at these areas and just begin to write out what you're thankful for. And let it flow freely. Draw all over it. Write in different colors. And he says this in the book. He says, simply allow one gift after another to come to mind and, and jot down each one, praising God for that gift. So this is actually an entrance into our time. Uh, it's a prayer, prayer exercise. So I realize that not everybody has a table. There are also spaces in the main church area or the office area that you can go to. I will ring a bell in about 15 minutes to then dismiss you to groups, but feel free to spread out, uh, create some space uh, for, this, for this exercise. I will, I'll give you about 20 minutes for that. Is there anything else? If you're in the, the current TI uh, cohort, you just go to wherever you were. Yeah, Adam, do you have a question? So your, your spheres, okay? All right. So I would say most of you have, you have some kind of family. This doesn't, you don't have to be married, but you've got a family, okay? You have, a, you have work. Maybe you have two jobs, like me. i got three spheres. Um, and uh, so you have family, you have work. Um, you might have some other random thing that's a big part of your life that takes a lot of your time. Um, and I, I think one suggestion to you, make a privileged circle, okay? Like if you're sitting in this room, you're a privileged person, okay? So you might just like jot down, I graduated from high school. 
Um, I have health insurance. Uh, I went to college, you know, whatever. Those like those privileged things that we kind of forget about sometimes. So do a privileged circle, a family circle, a job circle, and then anything that comes to your mind. Maybe it's your body. Like if you have a sickness right now that's taking a lot of your time, that's going to be a circle for you.